entering Westminster Hall, I was overwhelmed by the tableau in front of me. I had seen it on TV, but here it was in reality. The Queen's raised coffin dominating the Great Hall. The soldiers guarding it, heads bowed in mournful pose, leaning on their swords. And the silence, the absolute silence, except for the sound of feet walking across a stone floor. Habakkuk describes the sense of awe at discovering the Lord in the temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him, he writes. And I felt a sense of awe entering that hall. A sense of God being present in a public demonstration of mourning. As I descended those steps in Westminster Hall, taking in the scene, my only response was, silently, to pray some familiar prayers. Father of all, we pray for those whom we love but see no longer. Grant them your peace. Let light perpetual shine upon them, and in your loving wisdom and almighty power, work in them the good purpose of your perfect will. And after a few more steps, the Lord's Prayer. And after a few more steps, May the souls of the faithful departed rest in peace and rise in glory. The Bishop of Southwark yesterday said that the queue seemed to him a bit like a pilgrimage. I'm glad he said that because I had thought the same whilst I was standing in the queue. A pilgrimage with, yes, some discomfort, although I admit to only having done five hours. Lucky me. Companions on the way. Conversations. Food shared. Encouragement given. A quiet, restrained, reflective pilgrimage. The destination a coffin, and a confrontation with the reality of death. The experience was spiritual, awe-inspiring, and prayerful. What do we make of thousands of people queuing for hours to spend a moment in front of a coffin of a woman most of them have never met, but think they might know. I was glad no reporter asked me why I was there. 
I'm not sure that I knew. A sense of thanksgiving for devoted service thrust upon a woman in early years, quite unexpectedly. A sense of participating in history, dating back to another Elizabeth, Henry, Richard, William and beyond. Wanting to be part of a unique British occasion. Those might have been my answers. I don't really know. For some, their own grief is somehow encapsulated in one representative woman. Their own parents, grandparents, child. I always am aware when I take a funeral that there is more than one person being mourned. Our tears then might not just be for the Queen, but for ourselves. Her death, sad, yes, but expected in elderly age, might invoke memories, maybe painful ones. C.S. Lewis wrote, No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I wonder if you have noticed that sensation at all like being afraid. Pay attention to it. Who is it that you are mourning? Paul writes, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Ian Ainsworth Smith and Peter Speck wrote quite a well-known book on caring for the dying and the bereaved. And right at the beginning, Speaking of grief more generally, they offer us a remarkably perceptive insight into our current context, mourning the late sovereign. They write, Sorrow is an essential ingredient of grief, with an associated pining for the world that has been lost rather than for the object itself. It is as if an important point of reference has disappeared in our lives. 
and we are adrift until we can establish new landmarks. They were writing a long time ago about grief in general. They might well have written that this week in one of the newspapers. Have we lost a point of reference? Are we not sure what the new landmarks are? Uncertain what the world will be like, this country even, in 70 years time. This is a moment of national contemplation, but also personal memory for those we have loved and yet see no longer. And at its heart, one family, sons and daughters, grandchildren who are bereaved, who remind us of ourselves and our bereavements. One coffin, the Queen, which silently speaks to thousands of people in a queue of their own mortality. Our Christian story is of Christ who dies presenting to us mortality. But for Christ in death, life is redeemed, redeemed through the love and service of the one who sacrifices for all. In Christ, love is stronger than death and changes his followers into a people of strength and purpose, a people who will love God and love their neighbour. Resurrection. Christ's death asks us what is of ultimate importance, what is eternal, what is Christian love? For some, the question is who would we die for? In one man, we are confronted with mortality. Paul writes, for there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. The gospel reading today seems, on the surface, to be about the use of money and resources. But I want to suggest to you that it is perhaps about mortality. What has one done with the resources at one's disposal? What account will you give at the end? And it seems to be that the key part of this parable, actually not really part of the parable, but a commentary after it, is this. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, in what is eternal. 
The parable itself is not straightforward. A rich man finds out that his manager or steward has been wasting his property. And it would seem as if this steward has loaned out on the strength of the property loans which have never been repaid. He is given his notice. In order to secure his future, the steward calls in the loans. However, he needs friends once he is out of work. So he gives each debtor a discount. Is this so that the debtors are now in the steward's debt? Can he use them once he is out of work? He's been wasteful in the past. Now he is either shrewd or dishonest. The parable invites you to decide. Some say that in offering a discount, the steward is taking off the interest, which might enable him to comply with the biblical laws on what one can earn on money. This is extremely complicated and much disputed amongst Jewish scholars and leaders of the time. Is Jesus in this parable entering into a debate with his fellow scholars and teachers on how to apply this part of the Jewish law, which is somewhat obscure to us? The next problem with this passage is verse 8, the word master. The master, you may recall, commends the dishonest servant, which is slightly odd commends him because he acted shrewdly. The problem is, is the master the master of the rich man in the story, the parable, or is the master Jesus? And if it's Jesus, why is Jesus commending the dishonest servant? It is a very confusing parable. I don't think the master of the story is Jesus. It seems to me that the parable is kind of ironic. The irony being the steward's dishonesty and then shrewdness is congratulated by his master, the rich man, who by implication is himself rather dishonest. Because Jesus goes on to say, if you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches. Is it a parable about mortality? Your final account. If you have not loved and cared and served with what you have been entrusted in your life, what will be your reward eternally? So perhaps it is a parable about the ultimate end things and mortality and how you deal with your life between its birth and its death.
two of my own parables to close. A moving story was told about the Queen this week by, or actually last Saturday, by Terry Waite. Just after Terry Waite was released from captivity, being held hostage, the Queen contacted him. She realised he might want to be away from the gaze of the public whilst he adjusted to life outside of captivity. So she offered him rooms and staff in Balmoral for as long as he wanted, which he accepted. And I believe he said in the interview that he's never told anybody that before. Perhaps it is not how much wealth you have, but what you do with it. And one image from my time in the queue. And it is from the garden beside the Palace of Westminster. A scout, a volunteer, was sifting through the bags of cans and wrappers which had been thrown away by the public because they had to eat and drink up everything before they went into Westminster Hall. And the scout was diligently reading each package, working out which recycling pile it was to go in. A little thing, a faithful thing, and not 500 yards away from that scout, laid in a coffin, contains the body of a woman, probably the most famous woman on the earth. Two little parables, which perhaps reflect Jesus's saying, Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. Let us pray. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of thy people Israel, Amen.